We're only ever asked to defend the things that kids love. We're never asked to defend tests or homework. There seems to be some evidence that even when we, we, we gave the same standardized tests for kids, they did better by not being in school. Now, you'll never see that published. I think that we've oversold the value of instruction. And a lot of people then want to say, oh, you mean like good instruction versus bad instruction. And I'm like, no, no, actual instruction. I think we, we overvalued the idea that, that people learn by being taught. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. I'm so excited about our guest today, Dr. Gary Steger. I came across Gary uh, flipping through podcasts, leading a school trip and being on a bus for countless hours every day. And I found myself coming back to each of these recordings because there's so much richness in what Gary says. He pushes the envelope, shakes us by really positioning things and letting us see different perspectives on issues. Now, since 1982, Gary's helped school educators around the world really embrace computational technology uh, as an intellectual laboratory. He's rooted in the Piaget notion that knowledge is a consequence of experience. He worked for 20 years with Seymour Papert, and his activities with teachers and students are guided by a focus on learning by doing. He's also the founder of the Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute for Educators, which will take place in July. It's been going on for a number of years. Took a little break with COVID, but now it's back, and he'll speak a little bit about this. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Gary. Well, hi, Gary. Really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, I've heard you elsewhere, and you've always got uh, quite a bit to say, quite a bit to, to say that will shake things and uh, get people to, to think and, and provoke them, which I particularly appreciate. I'll start with uh, the questions that we ask all our guests, asking you, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, thanks for having me. Um, first and foremost, I think of myself as a teacher educator. I've been actually teaching teachers for a very long time. This past January marked my 40th anniversary of, of working in education. And I've always been committed to making the world a better place for kids. And um, when I got interested in education in the early 1980s, um, I was attracted to educational computing, not just because I learned how to program in junior high school in a public school system in Wayne, New Jersey, outside of New York City. And that for the first time in my life, I felt intellectually powerful and creatively expressive. And I spent the next six years of school programming computers um, only to think that I would never touch one again once I graduated because, you know, who was ever going to use a computer again? Um, but I was interested in educational computing because that's where the, the wisest, most radical, most progressive, creative thinkers in education were at the time. And I had the great fortune of working with the father of educational computing, Seymour Papert, for more than 20 years and have tried to keep his legacy alive. So I've, I, I led professional development in the first two schools where every kid had a laptop. I've taught everything from preschool to the doctoral level. Like I've been working on online collaborative projects with students since the 80s. Um, I created one of the first online master's degree programs in the mid-1990s. Um, so I've been at this for a long time. I've gotten to see trends come and go and then come again. Um, and have worked as a journalist and school administrator and have more recently been writing and publishing books. Um, so all, you know, the story that I could tell is that my, my work has been committed to making the world a better place for kids. I want to live in a world where kids wake up at three o'clock in the morning with a burning desire to get back to school, to continue working on something that matters to them. And 
where their teachers wake up every morning and ask themselves the question, how do I make this the best seven hours of a kid's life? I want to pick up on that and specifically the use of the word world. But before I do so, in order for us to have a shared understanding, how do you define learning? Well, I would say three things. The first is that learning is natural. And if you don't believe that learning is natural, then you have to concoct all sorts of artificial coercive tricks to get kids to do things that are against their self-interest. Um, I think the other way I would define it is, in a sense, the way John Dewey found, defined it, which was that, that learning is growth. And I related to that in, in greater than a personal context, but in a sort of more social, societal, macro context, um, that, it's pro, that it's progress, that it's, that it's making yourself and the world around you better as you continue to learn and grow. But I think that educators would um, be well served by thinking more about learning being natural as opposed to some mechanistic piece of sleight of hand that you engage children in. And this mechanistic sleight of hand is that kids can see through that, right? And that's why they're not necessarily excited to get up and, and go to school. When you say make the world a better place, world is, even goes beyond the classroom when they wake up and get excited. How do we think about the way the world is changing now where we have the opportunities to go outside the classroom, we have the opportunities to connect through technology, we have the opportunities maybe to, to take learning elsewhere and then bring it maybe back in the classroom. How do you see those shifts occurring in the last few years or maybe in the last few decades? Maybe it's always been that way. Huh. Well, I think a lot, I'll, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a, a turn. Um, a lot of people are talking about, you know, making education real and they talk about you know real world experiences for kids and first of all, all my work is fundamentally based on the piagetian notion that knowledge is a consequence of experience and to the extent that you want to diagnose any weakness in an educational context it can almost always be reduced to an absence of experience or a artificial or fake or an impoverished experience being being provided when a real one exists however the use of the word real is is quite similar to the way I'm using world in, in the following fashion. Um, you know, when we talk about preparing, when we talk about making learning real or the real world, um, often that means, you know, cleaning up the local toxic waste site near the school or asking third graders to find a cure for cancer or trifold, you know, boards of, of fanciful notions about what the future would be like. And, and I think that that often exaggerates the potential of kids that that burdens them with the problems that were created by adults that they have yet to be able to solve. Um, and disrespects it does violence to the culture of childhood. So if you're seven years old, making a dinosaur out of cereal boxes is real world and should be celebrated and should be celebrated. And what the technology adds to that equation is now we might have the ability to have your cereal box dinosaur sing, dance, or send a text message to your grandmother. And if that's the case, why don't we make that possible? So I, I take, I like to work from sort of a micro to a macro view that I think um, creating productive contexts for learning in which kids feel good about what they're doing and feel like they have a stake and want to be there um, and have something to share 
without all the highfalutin excess that's associated with voice and social emotional learning and emotional intelligence and mood meters and all these other time wasters that are sort of meta you know techniques that are that are sprinkled about the school that that distract from from doing things um like i said i think we ought to be providing safe pleasant rewarding um experiences for kids and uh, and those experiences don't have to be adult experiences but they should be rich and meaningful and they can also be whimsical and fun and playful and beautiful textural um so you know my my doctoral research was based on creating a high tech project based multi age alternative constructionist learning environment inside a prison for teenagers a facility where amnesty international was documenting documenting state torture of teenagers um and we created an environment where kids could work 5 hours a day on personally meaningful projects of their choosing some kids were writing some kids were programming some kids were building some kids were running a dark room and and launching hot air balloons that would take aerial photos when an ice cube melted and released the shutter on a pinhole camera and other kids were building robots that would go down a gopher hole to find out what was down there um in 3 plus years we didn't have a single discipline problem that required a kid to leave the classroom for any reason um and we had kids who in a lot of cases hadn't been in school since year 5 or 6 5th or 6th grade who were spending a couple months with us and then going to college it was just it was you know it was the kind of environment where you know explicitly we wanted to create an environment that the best private schools would be jealous of and it was always amusing when people would justify what we were doing and try to reconcile it rationalizing their brain by saying well you know these kids have so much more freedom which was interesting in a place where the state was torturing them as soon as we turned our back um and where you could be punished for collaborating um but this despite all of that one of the lessons that we learned explicitly was that talk therapy doesn't work with children doing stuff does and we live in a world now where we're talking an awful lot and doing a lot less than we should you know i i always like to say to young people of a remarkable capacity for intensity and it's incumbent upon us to build upon that capacity for intensity otherwise it manifests itself as boredom or ennui or misbehavior and i never worry about classroom management i walk into schools that i've never been to before and i've literally had this happen where they say hey i was wondering if you could work with the 7th grade but sure when now how many kids 350 and i walk into this you know gymnasium and there's 350 kids with laptops i have to figure out something constructive to do on the fly and again i there's no discipline problems i don't i don't no one has to be managed because i i never view myself as an opposing force who's coming in to impose my will on 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 people who are shorter than me um and so as a result i i have this sort of collegial attitude of hey we've got some stuff to do i might have some expertise to offer you might as well let's 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 do something so that kind of shapes everything i do even around you know teacher teacher development and stuff as well going back to this thing about you know adults imposing their will talk about climate change and suddenly you have grade 3 that's going to fix the whole in the ozone layer it's no wonder that kids feel certain sense of future phobia and 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 lack of agency and and disempowerment it's no wonder because they they're not going to do that what they can do is 
work in their own little world and, and have that maybe expand, as you said, from micro to macro in other ways. How do we allow ourselves to, to operate in a world where we're told, oh, but school is there to make kids global citizens? Well, well, okay, so let me take that one. Terms like, you know, things like saying things like schools are there to make entrepreneurs or global citizens is, is like something that um, the great jazz musician Mulgrew Miller used to call um, press release musicians. You know, there were great musicians that musicians respected that everyone wanted on their record or on their, their live date. And then there were the folks who were in the magazines and they were, those were the press release musicians. Um, saying things like we want kids to be global citizens or, or you know, entrepreneurs or, you know, what, you know tomorrow there'll be a new one. Um, it's, just, it's just buzzwords. It's just, it's just jargon. It's just marketing slogans that, that are often um, cover for, for inaction. I think there's, there's a real practical approach that you can take to answer your question. Um, I highly recommend David Perkins's book, Making Learning Whole where he says that when you want to teach something to kids, you have to come up with a junior version of the whole game. So if you ask me, what do you think about preschoolers and community service? I often reply, well, what felony have they committed? Um, you know, maybe a preschooler should be cleaning up after themselves and being nice to one another. Um, you know, and I worked in, I, I did a lot of work in Australia and the independent schools in Australia were forever holding daily sausage sizzles to raise funds to cure a disease that they couldn't pronounce in a place they couldn't find on a map. And yet there was remarkable economic and educational inequity um, down the street, you know, in their neighborhood. So perhaps there were educational experiences that you could embark on that were connected to you and your, in your neighborhood, as opposed to, you know, trying to cure something new. And I mean, there was a period where Apple was actually pushing something called challenge-based learning, where their workshops were literally like what you described. Um, you know, the scientists think the planet is heating up, use garage band to reverse climate change. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a stuff of parody. Um, and, and it doesn't need to be that way. There's, there's plenty to do that, that's valuable. Some of it is time-honored. One of my great mentors, that the jazz legend Jimmy Heath used to say, what was good is good. There are, there are timeless traditions and activities and knowledge domains that, that are beneficial to kids, that communities can, can find valuable and sustain. And then there are all sorts of wonderful opportunities to learn and do new things. I mean, a lot of people are interested in using technology to double down on the status quo or to increase efficiency or efficacy or comprehension of what we've always wanted to teach kids. But what really animates my work is the opportunities to learn and do and know in ways that were unimaginable just a couple of years ago. Um, and so even when we say simple things like, well, you know, imagine in the future, because of the internet, kids will be able to talk to a NASA scientist. Well, they used to be able to write a letter to a NASA scientist. Why don't, you know, you've been waiting to do that. Why haven't you been writing letters? But um, or invite one to talk to your class on the phone or visit or take a field trip for God's sakes. But, um, but despite, despite those promises of the future, we put policies in places in school that don't allow kids to engage in correspondence. Right. That, yeah, good luck to you. You know, I, 
<laughs> any kid wants to email me a programming problem or has an interesting project they want to work on, I'm happy to drop everything and collaborate with them. But I'm, you know, I'm often to paid to work with schools where I can't see this kid's screens or they're not allowed, they don't have email addresses or something is blocking, you know, the state of South Australia blocks my website because it's a personal website. You know, you know, it's levels of, you know, that are of, of, of insanity that, that keep us from even doing sim sensible, tiny things that kids might benefit from and that they might enjoy. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of truth in advertising and doing, you know, meaning what I say and doing what I, what I mean and um, not lying to children. And as a result, I think there are a lot of really cool things you can do, regardless of where you are and what technology you're blessed with um, and, and whatever the future holds that, that we should be doing today. And I think we need a sense of urgency, aside from the fact that there have been microcomputers in schools now for almost 45 years, and we're still trying to find ways to beg, bribe, cajole, trick, threaten, coerce teachers to use this stuff. Um, I, I often think of something that great author and educator Jonathan Kozel says, which is that you're only seven once. And every time we say manana or next year, or we're writing a framework for, you know, we, we deprive some kid today of having a rich educational experience. And they can't even collaborate with each other. That's cheating. Well, you know, we talk about, we talk about the primary, the primary purpose of school is socialization. And then what's the number one infraction? Talking in class. Right. Talking to one another. So I, you know, Teachers and technology, what's what's the biggest barrier in your mind? What is going on in terms of the inability to be more creative, more open, and letting go with technology? And specifically, letting the kids figure out what they want to use as well. It has to be embedded in a coherent educational vision. You know, we led professional development. In the, I led professional development in the first two laptop schools in the world in 1990. And if you read, the, I've got the receipts. And in fact, behind me, I've got the first doctoral dissertation that was published in the early 90s about the efficacy of one-to-one -one computing. So, you know, if you want to ask me, do we have any evidence 30 plus years on whether kids should have their own computer? It's, it's, that's a, it's a disingenuous question. We've got plenty of it. Um, but the original laptop schools viewed, viewed the computer as an intellectual laboratory of self-expression. It was coming out of a progressive vision of education that was rooted in Papert's idea of the computer of the child programming the computer rather than the computer programming the child. And it led to all sorts of wholesale changes in the nature and, and culture of the schools that in which I was involved. Um, and we did it with existing faculty because it was a coherent vision from the, from the top. And it was, there was, support provided for people like myself to work in classrooms alongside teachers and help them see through the eyes and the hands and the screens of their kids what was possible. And, and courageous, curious educators who were trusted by their colleagues were given some release time to collaborate in other people's classrooms. Um, and, and, you know, technology can be used to benefit one of three constituents in education, the system, teachers, or learners. And we could all work really hard to come up with the single example of when one of the technologies was kind of pulled a little bit towards a second constituent. But by and large, technology benefits either the system, teachers, or learners. Um, and I think the greatest return on investment is investing in the learners. So if, if you're just looking at efficiency, then you let the kids play. You know, I used to say Donald Trump dress up when that was funny. Um, 
you know, look, she's 10 years old and look how cute she is using PowerPoint and wearing mommy's heels. Um, I don't find that stuff very impressive. At the same time, I think it's an indictment of education that there hasn't been a single classroom for one hour, let alone a school year, that said, we're going to give little kids a laptop instead of the ancient scratching stick called the pencil, just to see what that might mean for kids' literacy development. Um, it's kind of bananas to me that that hasn't happened, that we're still trying to teach kids how to use an ancient scratching stick. When if, if our goals were truly only literacy and maths, um, kids would have computers and they would be using them all the time. Because we know that the, the fundamental revolution in computing over the last 40 years has been word processing. And kids aren't writing better or more by and large or, or for different media. They're, they're still doing five paragraph essays. And, um, and we could talk about math forever and the disaster that that is. You know, in 1989, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics said that 50% of mathematics has been invented since World War II as a result of two forces. The social sciences increasing demand for number and the, um, the availability of computation. Um, and, and yet none of that is reflected in the existing curriculum. We keep trying to find ways to sugarcoat a, a math that the kids find noxious rather than creating a, a diet of mathematics that they can, that they can love and digest. That's, I owe that to Seymour Pepper, to paraphrase of what he used to say. Um, and if, if mathematics is a way of making sense of the world, computers are a way of making mathematics. And yet, even if we talk about we've just narrowed the curriculum, which is unfortunate to, to maths and literacy, we don't seem to be serious about that either. Because if we were, we'd be using the protean tools for, for intellectual work in those, those domains. And kids would be writing a lot more and better. And they wouldn't be asking how to spell something. We wouldn't be teaching spelling. And we wouldn't be wasting time on handwriting. And, you know, and we wouldn't be diagnosing learning disabilities because a kid confuses their ability to create shapes with an ancient scratching stick and their ability to express themselves. And this goes also, uh, you know, counter to what a lot of the teachers say, which is kids are on screen too much. We need to get them off the screens. We need to do this. We need to do that. They, they, there's a fundamental, in my opinion, disconnect between the, 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 the importance of technology, but also the way the generations are changing. But there is this fear that they're too much on screens. We need to take them off. That's the narrative in many places. Well, when I speak to parents, I, I make the case that there's a profound difference between the ways in which I use a computer as a constructive medium where you, you create, where you share, um, where you mediate a conversation with yourself and you communicate some idea to the computer, just like you would to materials or colleagues. And um, if you're successful you're, with your hypothesis, you test a larger one, you ask a deeper question, you embellish, you decorate, um, you will learn new things. If you're unsuccessful, you engage in some debugging processes and the ways in which you might use an iPad to shut your toddler up in a restaurant. Right. And, you know, for 30 plus years, my colleagues and I were dismissed as reckless dystopians and spendthrifts who had this preposterous idea of every kid having a laptop computer. Um, and then this thing called COVID-19 hit and laptops descended from the heavens absent any coherent vision and what schools did with the lab with the with the devices by and large was the worst form of education we've ever recorded and we invented things like bitmojis and zoom detention and so 
if that was my only vision of using technology in education, I would hate it too. And, and if I was a sixth grader or a seventh grader who was required to take a digital literacy course instead of the seventh grader that I was in 1975, who was in a school where someone got the bright idea that every 12-year-old should learn how to program in nine weeks, I would hate computers as well. And I have friends who are really good at this idea of digital literacy and dig media literacy and digital citizenship. And, you know, I, I said to one of them yesterday, you place a great deal of faith in instruction that I do not share. Because aside from the hysteria associated with that and the sermonizing, there's an awful lot of just say no to drugs in a sort of idea of we're going to teach the kids about this world that we only partially understand that really belongs to them, that's not going anywhere, and that clearly has much greater upside than it does perils. And in fact, the only way you understand copyright and plagiarism and bullying is buying, by do, being constructively engaged in that world. You know, one of the lessons I learned from my colleagues in Reggio Emilia, Italy, the ground zero for probably the most humane, beautiful, creative, well-respected approach to early childhood education in the world is that it's irresponsible to build pens around children. What, what we should be doing as adults is finding constructive ways for them to engage in their world. And sometimes just saying, hey, you know, that's kind of dopey. Or, or, or offering an alternative. There's so much cool stuff you could be doing. And you could say to a kid, hey, you know that video you spent three seconds on, it kind of sucks. You know, what, if, what if you actually tried this or looked at or didn't shake the camera or you know, wrote it, you know, planned what you're, you know, planned the script or you know, whatever, and, and, and worked on multiple versions of it, continuously you know, tried to get better at something. You know, I, I, I think that schools have an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. That's how they remain viable for the future. And, and then once kids select one of those things that they love as their project, we can formally support them in developing expertise in that, in that direction. But that's different. And, and people need to perhaps catch the nuance of introducing them to say chemistry for a year and dragging him through that torture mess and saying, oh, but if we don't drag them through a year of chemistry, they might never attain their dream of being in a, in a lab. There, there is a nuance there. I, I tell you my chemistry, my personal chemistry story. I wanted to be a chemist so bad I took German because someone told me you needed German for chemistry. I, I spent from about the time I was seven or eight years old until about 13, like thousands of hours playing with a chemistry set you know, making stuff blow up and smell bad and burning through furniture and all the stuff that doesn't exist in kids' lives today. Um, and, and the thing that had the greatest prophylactic impact on my desire to be a chemist was chemistry class. That kind of ended it really quickly. Um, so, you know, absolutely. I think the kids should have lots of kinds of experiences available to them. And we need to, that's why school exists, to democratize access to experience and expertise. Because they don't have chemistry on the internet or in their bedrooms or on the street corners or at a camp or at the YMCA or, you know, in the scout troop necessarily. So school is the place where you can do that. And I used to say the only reason I send my kids to school is banned. We had everything else at home. Um, 
So yeah, I, 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 clearly that's the case. And then some kids will fall in love with chemistry and then we could do a much better job of supporting that once they choose that as their project. Rather than saying you can't graduate, you can't have a key to you know the outside world unless you have all these different courses and you have that under your belt. My entire life has been overcoming prerequisites. I got a PhD without a, without a master's degree. Um, I got a, a co- I got a scholarship to one of the finest music conservatories in America without auditioning. Um, I I got through you know I spent six six years programming computers and, and getting terrible grades in school math. I I mean there's any number of you know I I, I attended I attended a university for three and a half years full time, including summers in some cases, and had satisfied no requirements towards graduation because I thought you could take classes that looked interesting. And apparently that wasn't permissible. Um, and eventually I got caught. I got caught taking courses that I was learning things in and enjoying. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And let me come back to what we were talking about earlier about the real world. You know, when people talk about preparing kids for the real world, I, I brace myself because I know one of two things is about to happen. One is they're going to describe a real world that's awful. Um, it's what Alfie Cohn calls the better get used to it curriculum. You know, fifth grade has to suck because you won't believe what sixth grade is like. And if you don't take chemistry, you're going to be a homeless loser. The other thing that happens when politicians or school leaders talk about preparing kids for the real world is their sense of the real world is probably some sort of cartoon version of, of, the, of the world rooted in nostalgia that bears no actual resemblance to the real world. So I'll give you a sense of the real world. Um, I have three adult educated, university educated children. The only one who has lived on her own with health insurance in an apartment from the second she graduated university was the art major. Um, she now has a master of fine arts from the um, Art Institute of Chicago and has a job with unlimited vacation time. This is becoming increasingly common in in the sort of high tech industries. Um, How could you have a job with unlimited vacation time? She can literally say, I'm not available next week. So don't schedule me for anything. And the check still arrives. Well, because there is a social contract that says, we employed you because you're capable of doing the work and we expect that you will. Now, if we wanted to work back from the real world to primary school, What would the bell schedule look like and the courses kids were required to take? And would we be talking about time on task and quiz on Wednesday, review on Thursday, test on Friday? And there have been plenty of models throughout history of primary schools where there's an expectation you do your work and you do your work without the coercion and the bells and the external assessments and all that other stuff. So we know how to do this stuff. When, when school leaders say to me, oh, if only we knew what to do, I say, you know, swing by my house. I got a few thousand. There's, there's rooms full of books that I own that tell you how to do it. We should recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And one of the reasons why I, I, I recently published a book called 20 Things to Do with a Computer Forward 50 is it's, it's inspired by a paper that Cynthia Solomon and Seymour Papa wrote in 1971 called 20 Things to Do with a Computer that if you're in a school that's looking for a tech plan, you should just throw that document on the table because it's still aspirational for far too many schools. 
But then I got, you know, four dozen um, great working educators and heroes and influences, influencers of mine from three generations to sort of reflect on the last 50 years and celebrate the next with their visions of what's possible to recognize that we've done a lot of the work before and that there's still a lot more work to be done. And we should appreciate that we, we stand on the shoulders of giants and we don't have to solve all these problems ourselves and what was good is good. And there are experiences that, that we can learn and grow from and then use the new technology to amplify. You know, I, I had some online discussions recently around the book and was able to share some of my heroes and sheroes with, with educators. And that's one of the, the great joys of my life is doing that. And I looked into the Zoom screen and I recognized this older woman as someone I knew in the 80s. But I hadn't seen her in a very long time. And she turned out to be a 92-year-old retired educator who participated in all five of the discussions that we had. And at various times, she and some other veteran educators um, told the story of the moment where some kid had an epiphany or a breakthrough and created this great learning adventure. And they were able to recount that moment with joy and clarity and specificity and recognize its significance in a way that was truly beautiful. And, and, and then this woman said, hey, you know what? I was part of this logo action research project in the mid eighties. Let me see if I can find the learning inventory we created and, and I'll figure out a way to scan it for all of you. And, you know, I believe in the confidence and competence of educators. And my Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute every July, teachers take technology and timeless craft traditions and recycled junk and toys and each other and create things that take my breath away. And they do it year after year after year, predictably, without instruction, without being told what to do, without me setting any kind of prompts or expectations other than I'd like you to spend the next four days taking off your teacher hat and putting on your learner hat and be selfish with the experience and creating an environment with distributed expertise and smart, talented people who can spend time with you and help you realize um, inventions based on dreams that you didn't even know were possible. We still live in a culture, and this is this is the part that causes friction. So we stand on the shoulders of giants. Some of the ways that we've been doing things for a while still stand and are tried and tested, but there's an obsession with the latest research. I even have a friend of a friend who was saying that she has a job interview, and she was asked to prepare about what's the latest research on asking kids questions. That blew me away. And yet there's this obsession with having the latest research constantly. Once again... It, it's it's an it's an excuse for inaction, um, and it's a mental illness. This 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 idea that we have to quantify everything and you know and 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 defy our own common sense. Um, I mean, I've I've got a a lot of ways to answer that, but um, we're only ever asked to defend the things that kids love. We're only ever asked to defend things like projects or music or art or computer programming, or robotics, or making things, or dance. We're never asked to defend tests, or homework, which there is zero research to support, or bell schedules, or getting up before sunrise and being strapped to a vehicle and taken to a place you don't want to go, 
or spelling tests or cursive handwriting. So it's disingenuous. And maybe at this point in my career, I have very little tolerance for it. Um, I, I, I like to think, I think on a daily basis about something that the U.S. political strategist Paul Begala and James Carville, who helped Bill Clinton get elected, used to say, which is, it's awfully hard for me to talk. I'm sorry. It's awfully hard for you to talk when my fist is in your mouth. Um, you know, it's it, there's no way to convince someone who's who's demanding evidence that talking to kids is beneficial. You know, maybe that's a maybe that's a tell and that person shouldn't want to work there. Um, you know, like I said, the. <laughs> The evidence on laptops is overwhelming. And it and and by the way, it was unrequired. Are you really suggesting that kids shouldn't use computers in a world where everyone uses computers? It's preposterous. It's the arrogance of it. The 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 the, the rank arrogance of demanding evidence for kids to be in the world in which they live is just ridiculous. And like I said, I've got I've got a low tolerance for it at this point. Um, and there's not and, and anyone who asks that question will never be satisfied. So it's not a game that I want to play. On the other hand, if you ask me how can teachers sustain the kinds of progress they'd like to make or the practices that they that they believe in, I would say that shameless self-promotion is the key to all good things. And that teachers aren't particularly good at that. Um, but they need to toot their own horn. They need to have weekly newsletters. They need to invite parents into the classroom. They need to run family nights where you recognize that you're educating everyone, not just the child. And that if a school is committed to authentic assessment, you can't do one parent night. You have to do it repeatedly because not everyone was there the first time. Not everyone understood it the first time. Not everyone believed it the first time. Um, you know, and that the way you sustain the culture is by continuously educating people about the values and the practices of that community and that culture. And, and if you're uncomfortable um, being a shameless self-promoter, then there's probably a seventh grader you can appoint minister of propaganda. Um, I, I, get a, I get an email on a weekly basis from someone selling a book that the opening line in the email is, I'm a student of someone, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in this book. And I, I'm, I'm interested in hiring whoever the student is because they're really good at bothering me about this book that I'm not interested in. Um, and, and so I think there's a difference between proving what's, what's clearly provable and unworthy of being proven because it's self-evident and making our practice visible so that other people can can choose from what they haven't seen. We, we, one of the problems with getting teachers to use technology or getting them to, ch to make progress in any direction is they, haven't, they can't choose from what they haven't seen or what they haven't experienced. You know, I learned from my partner, Sylvia Martinez, when you have a toddler, you don't ask, do you want to walk or be carried? You ask, do you want to walk on the, the grass or the footpath? Um, you have to give people reasonable options. And, and, and my work is, is largely modeled on the idea of showing people what's possible. And when I work in classrooms with teachers or I run a family workshop and, and the adults can see through the eyes and the hands and the screens of their kids what's possible, that brings about a pretty rapid change in practice and a new appetite for, for doing things in a different way. 
And going back to COVID and and uh, and doing things in a different way, we're actually back to doing things the same way. Uh, there was a time in, in 2021 was the year of everything's changed. Nothing will ever go back the same. New normal. Uh, we saw what was going on in our kids' classes. At the same time, 2022, we're back to normal. How how can there have been so much excitement, so much disappointment, and and we're back to 2019? So I said in a talk that I gave the other day, um, everyone wants to know about the pandemic. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, I made the conscious decision when it all went down that I didn't want to engage in pandemic porn, that, that I wasn't going to be helping schools figure out a way to, to react. And because um, first of all, I didn't have a crystal ball. And, um, and, and second of all, I, I sensed that it was a race to the bottom. And what I did instead was I organized open sessions on Zoom where I shared my friends and heroes with educators and I created opportunities for teachers to talk to Alfie Cohen and Carlo Rinaldi and Conrad Wolfram and Deborah Meyer and Dennis Lidke and Sagata Mitra um, and Dana Malewa and David Loder and people like that. And I found when, when teachers stayed three hours after the guest speaker left, that, that, that there was a hunger for something else, for community. Um, and what I said the other day when someone asked, well, you know, what, what good came out of, of the pandemic? Um, is there any reason for optimism? I said, the internet performed brilliantly. Us, not so much. You know, do you think that there was anyone at Zoom who thought that Zoom would scale infinitely? I assure you there wasn't. Um, I assure you that we have a we have vaccines for COVID nineteen probably decades sooner than we would have without the internet. There's actually been studies in medical journals published in the last couple of months that have found that access to the internet reduced your chances of dying of COVID nineteen even when you um, even when you what's the term I want to use um, when when all things being equal even when you when you looked for income. This, you know, when people had the same income, all things being equal, even across income, access to the internet meant you were you were less likely to die from COVID nineteen. We were able to have food delivered. We were able to have to get you know all kinds of media available to us. The internet performed really well. Us not so much. And when when the pandemic struck in March of twenty twenty, um, I think people relied on their instincts and their wits, and humanity was really at its peak you know we were banging pots and pans outside the window to thank um, first responders and we were trying to take care of one another and you were hearing administrators say things like don't worry about the exams don't worry about the grades let's just make sure everyone's healthy and well and safe and and i remember going into north american summer around may june of that year and advising people not to go to any meetings over the summer I was telling any educator who would listen to me, don't go to any meetings. First of all, you need to recharge. But second of all, nothing good can come of this. And I hate to say I was right. But I was really optimistic about the future prior to the pandemic. And I wrote articles with titles like Hyper Optimism, where I was working with schools who were deeply committed to changing everything and realizing the visions of, of my heroes and were employing me to help them make sense of how this could actually be implemented on the ground in their communities. Um, and I come out of the pandemic um, thinking that we just experienced as educators a mass suicide event. 
And I'm not sure how we dig out of it. I'm not sure how long it's going to take to dig out of it. And and I'll also suggest that one of the things that we did was we when we opened the kimono and when we brought school into kids' bedrooms and into their kitchens and dining tables, um, was a lot of adults saw just how crummy school is. And they saw us at our absolute worst. And I think a lot of the torches and pitchforks that are coming to school board meetings and you know, granted in the United States, we are we are a racist country and all the sort of racism and book burning or all the other hysteria that's gone on um, isn't a new phenomena. But I think the the Zoom schooling was was an accelerant. And it didn't have an outlet. People didn't know how to articulate God. Not only does my kid hate school, but boy, do I hate school now. Um and and schools not having a response to that and and there being an absence of alternatives available. So, you know, what we get is hysteria over learning loss. And learning loss is just the annual Today Show weekly series on, you know, what kids summer, you know, loss and kids, you know, what they learned in school is going to leak out over the summer. And, you know, we've had that for forever as well. But now, now it's in some ways, um, been been magnified, exaggerated, and it's also real. Uh, I was saying at the beginning, what's, what are you going to do when a 12-year-old shows up and no one knows who the kid is because you haven't seen them in a few years? Um, you're going to stick them in a fourth grade class? Well, if you stick them in a fourth grade class, he won't make it to fifth grade. Um, so we haven't even dealt with the, the real structural problems that were caused by the pandemic. All we're doing is sort of cleaning up the mess that was of our own creation. Probably just going back and saying, hey, we're going to get back on this train. And it's going to be fine. Uh, learning loss, we'll just put him through a few extra uh, courses. And we still got the same standards. Still got this. Still got that. Uh, we're, we're, we're bad, guys. Well, and and there's, there, there seems to be some evidence that even when we, we, we gave the same standardized test for kids, they did better by not being in school. Now, you'll never see that published. Um, the res- and if it is, the result of that will be we'll just change the test. Because um, there's there's a... There's a great investment in, in schools failing. Um, there's a, there's, and it's not, I'm not one of these people who's going to talk about all the profits to be made from, from divesting in schools or from privatizing schools. Sure, there's a little bit of money, but it, it's chump change it, when compared to the ideo- ideological predispositions of the forces in our societies who don't see a value in public education. And want to use, want to turn public treasure into private playthings. Um, and you know, I've been writing for twenty-five years about people like Bill Gates, you know, using public education like Gomez Adams used the train set. Um, and that wasn't about profit; that was about about a belief system. Um, and and so. What what happened over the past couple of years is going to make that easier. You know, it, 20, 22 years ago in the United States, we had no child left behind. 15 years before that, we had nation at risk. These sort of top-down federal um, hysterical documents that said, oh, my God, every, the sky is falling. Schools are a disaster. And, and what they figured out how to do in the last 20, 22 years or so was both, both Bush and Obama. Um, 
was no one was ever fond of school, but they liked their kid's teacher. And what we've managed to accomplish over the last two decades is ways to cause the public to lose confidence in their kid's teacher, to erode, to erode support and confidence in the local educational experience. And, and as a result, like I said, you're seeing all sorts of chaos and name calling and shaming. And at a time of maximum teacher stress and shortages, we're making it harder to become a teacher. We're reducing pay. We're, you know, calling them names or firing them for saying that what they did over the weekend or who they're married to, or by talking to a kid, you know, and so there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of craziness. And I'll come back to a more optimistic view, which is about a year into the pandemic, I think it was about around October, 2021. Um, I participated in a webinar with some of the educators from Reggio Emilia, and they were ground zero for the European COVID disaster. They had among the greatest loss in the world. And they said, COVID-19 is a dictatorship. And we must, be, uh, we must um, obey the dictator to the extent to which we need to make sure that kids are safe and healthy um, and follow protocols that will keep them that way. But beyond that, we have an obligation to increase the beauty and whimsy and purpose and meaning and color and texture of the educational experience. That this is a time like no other in which we need to live our values. And we need to double down and be, be bolder in, in what we, we want to achieve for and with children. And I was inspired by this. And I went on social media and I said something about my inspiration. And, you know, everyone wanted to know the four and a half tips they shared. And I remember thinking to myself, live your values. And then leaning back and thinking, oh, you have to have some first. And so I think the work we, we can and should be doing personally is really sort of identifying what our values are so that we can then share them and then act, and act upon them and, and bring along allies and, and, and a support structure that will, that will help us realize those values so that we can make the world a better place for kids. And this really resonates with me, this idea of thinking about our own values, thinking about who we are, who we are not just in terms of as individuals, but who we are in terms of the tribe that we can maybe come with, the people that we can gather around. And so many people are trying to change the system, change the system, but they've been trying to change the system for 120 years. It just doesn't happen, specifically because of the forces that you mentioned, the Bill Gates, the capitalist system, the, this corporate, that government, this politician. Changing it at the central level hasn't happened, but maybe we can go back to what you're saying about micro to macro. That might be a different way to go around it. Well, I had a great, I had a great friend, Geraldine Cosberg, who was a civil rights activist who became an educator late in her life. And um, she used to say, I don't know how to change the system. I know how to change a school. And, and I've, you know, the reason why I keep getting up in the morning and, and pushing the rock up the hill is because I've had success throughout the, my career. I've seen what it, what it looks like. I've, I've seen teachers do a 180 and watch schools become fabulous places. And I've also watched them turn back around again. Um, and, you know, I think the best thing we could do is, is to 
create opportunities for kids to spend as much time as possible in a company of interesting adults. And if the adults are spending time with aren't interesting, then, then that's a different set of problems. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, if you come to constructing modern knowledge, you not only learn to use cutting edge hardware and software and make cool things, but you get to interact with some of the greatest thinkers of our time and meet astro astronomers and musicians and treehouse designers and authors and civil rights activists. And, and I always think about my guest speakers in terms of, I want the people to leave constructing modern knowledge saying I spent time with someone rather than I heard someone. And, and it's a, and there's a reciprocal process of, I can't tell you how much good has been done by inviting leading intellectuals and journalists and authors and educators and, and the creative class to an event where they can see teachers doing mind-blowing things with computers being used, not in a dystopian fashion, but in a way that's uplifting, that accentuates our humanity, that, that pushes on the frontiers of our potential. And nothing makes me more excited than when a great progressive educator like Deborah Meyer says, I never thought of computers being used in this way. This is wholly consistent with my life's work. Or the leader of the Reggio Children Foundation walking into constructing modern knowledge, smiling, winking at me and saying, okay, I get it. Or Alfie Cohn emailing me 10 years ago and say, and asking, why should I be on Twitter? Or I took my son to a scratch workshop. Um, because we built a bridge between these two communities. Um, you know, three years ago, before the 1619 Project and before critical race theory was a hysteria in America, and we were taking books about Rosa Parks out of libraries, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, was at Constructing Modern Knowledge. And I have photographs and video of her watching teachers show her the disco jacket they made that when they danced, it lit up and spilled things on the on the wearable computer that they had built. And I like to think that she left that experience thinking that there was more potential in teachers and schooling than, than the sort of daily battle and grind that we're often micro-focused on. Listen, Gary, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I, I'm going to leave it open to ask you, what, what's on your mind? What's on your horizon? Uh, what's, what's next? Well, I'm, I'm working on um, trying to get people to come to our 12th annual over 15 years because of COVID, Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute, July 25th to 28th in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, which is going to be fabulous. We have a ridiculous facility where if you want to cut steel with surgical precision, you can do that. And we have a half dozen liquid resin 3D printers and industrial size laser cutters and we will have plastic chickens that poop gumballs and all the other assorted stuff and a library and a fantastic faculty and Alfie Cohn and a world-class jazz musician and a woman who is helping bring libraries archival historical documents primary source documents to children via technology um and I'm I, I had a great experience during the pandemic of running a class that I called Clever Computing for Children, where I zoomed into a classroom in Alabama and taught fourth graders programming and, and, and mathematical thinking. Um, and, and it also provided a context for their teachers to be mentored by seeing how this was possible to see what these kids were capable of. 
And I'm hoping there's some schools that might want to work with me in the, the coming year to have me actually be the expert who comes in and teaches a class with their kids, um, not only to benefit their kids, but also, as I said, to create a model while it's possible and to build the capacity of their teachers. Um, and I'm editing a, a, a new jazz book by two great jazz musicians, a memoir by two great jazz musicians. And I'm, I'm interested in the, the, the topic of the limitations of instruction. Um, I think that we've oversold the value of instruction. And a lot of people then want to say, oh, you mean like good instruction versus bad instruction? I'm like, no, no, actual instruction. I think we, we overvalued the idea that, that people learn by being taught as, as opposed to the Piagetian idea that it's not the job of the teacher to correct the child from the outside, but to create the conditions by which they correct themselves from the inside. And whether it's working with kids or with adults, I, I've been thinking for a very long time about how is it possible that in a three-hour workshop, people were able to do things that they weren't able to accomplish after 20 years of PD or kids are better programmers than after a two-year scope and sequence course that they took with a, a lot of needless jargon and vocabulary. And when instead we focused on the actual experience um, and, and, and sort of generate, and, and the other idea that's related to this is the idea of generative design of, of coming up with prompts and inspiration and activities that are succinct and simple and comprehensible enough to fit on a t-shirt or a post-it note that immediately lead to some action that leads to a generation of a new idea and a larger hypothesis and a different test and something else you want to try. And there are lots of opportunities to sort of explore the idea of how you can have an educational system that that's rooted in the subtlety of, of good prompt setting that allows kids to go further than, than any curriculum could have ever imagined. I remember once you mentioned uh, on another podcast, one of the challenges could be something like uh, the, the Easter bunnies uh, sick, uh, figure out a way to uh, deliver these eggs. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll spend a second on that. I mean, I run a lot of robotics workshops that are, the prompt is almost always, you know, so let me, the, the curricular objective is understanding the value of robotics, um, how you could, uh, learning how to do some programming of physical objects, of, of dealing with the mechanical issues of friction and mechanical advantage and force and, and feedback with sensors and such. So, if I only have two hours, I bring a great product in like the Hummingbird Robotics Kit. The Hummingbird Bit Robotics Kit uses the, the micro bit as a microcontroller and it has a, a board where you can connect motors, lights, and sensors and use recycled junk and arts and craft supplies and cardboard and broken toys and such and connected to these things to create wonderful inventions. And so that's my curriculum, right? That's my, my implicit or explicit curriculum. Um, but I land in a city and at two o'clock in the morning, I go to the, the all night pharmacy and I look around for inspiration and I buy some stuff that's kind of whimsical and I come up with a prompt so I can throw everyone into the deep end of the pool with this prompt that is consistent with my idea that a good prompt is worth a thousand words. That if you have a good prompt, sufficient time, 
appropriate materials, and a supportive culture that includes a range of expertise, if you have those four elements in place, you can solve problems that are bigger than yourself. So, you know, I've done things like build a miniature golf hole that moves and does something and try to tries to deter you from hitting the, the, the golf ball in the hole. Or, um, you know, make a machine from the Wizard of Oz or whatever. So, you know, it was heading into Easter time and I was in this shop in the middle of the night and had all kinds of different size and diameter and mass chocolate eggs and plastic eggs and things. So I bought a bunch of them and said, the Easter bunny is sick. Something has to deliver the eggs. And now in about six or seven different workshops that I've done around Easter time, I've had hundreds of teachers create really good projects that, that satisfy that prompt. That's the good news. The bad news that's, that's, that's equally important to that story was after I had done four of these workshops across the state of Texas about four years ago, um, a month later, someone rather generously said on Twitter, you know, it's been a few weeks, but I can't stop thinking about that workshop that Gary ran. And someone said, oh, what did you do? And they, and they answered by saying, um, problem, the Easter bunny is sick. Solution, design a robot that delivers the eggs. And I looked at that and I was touched that they enjoyed the workshop so much and they were still thinking about it and they wanted, they were enthusiastically sharing what a genius I was with, with Twitterverse. Um, but as I looked at it and read it aloud, my partner, Sylvia Martinez said, don't do it. Cause she knew that I was about to bite the, the hand that feeds me. And I said, I just have to be a big mean, meanie poo poo head. Um, because they've just killed my life's work. And I wrote an article, you can Google my name and the subtlety of prompt setting. You can actually find it on my blog at stager.tv. Um, and I wrote an article about how the Easter Bunny 6, something I said, deliver the eggs is fundamentally different from problem. The Easter Bunny is sick. Solution, design a robot to deliver the eggs. And there's about a half dozen differences in just the way that that prompt was framed. So um, in a lot of ways, it's just an example of less is more. I, I often think about the apocryphal story of um, Luciano Pavarotti, the opera um, great, was performing a concert and Frank Sinatra went backstage after the concert to see him and said, Maestro, asked Maestro, how do you end your notes so brilliantly? And Pavarotti said, I close my mouth. And, and that's not bad advice for, for teachers. Um, and I know that I'm most effective when I'm doing the least and the students are doing the most. And I think, and that's sort of like, you know, a lot of these things I believe and that I've shared with you are kind of fractals. They work at every level of magnification. So that less us, more them applies to curriculum design. It applies to my interaction with the students. It applies to the prompt setting. It applies to assessment. It, I, I try to be consistent and I think it works on all those different levels. And, and, and if I think that I'm an educator, that I'm an educator of the kids who are assigned to me, to my colleagues, to the jerk on the bus, on the, you know, the guy sitting next to me on the bar, at the bar who's complaining about, about school, um, that, that if we, we live our values, again, to come to the lesson that I was reminded of from, from Reggio Emilia, then 
um, we can be consistent in our practice and we can find that it, it's much easier to keep track of what it is we actually believe and that our, our practice is, is a manifestation of, of those well thought out and, and conviction. Melissa, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. We have tons of articles, podcasts, resources, videos, conference talks, uh, which hopefully will inspire you. And of course, our articles are on www.intrepidednews.com, as well as fantastic educators on this platform. So please, I encourage you to go on that site. We hope to hear from you soon. Uh, again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. We've got a lot of projects coming up that we are going to make public. And I'm very excited uh, to launch some of these. And we'd love, as always, your comments. In the meantime, we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.